Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Good morning, everybody. I'm Father Morgan Reed, the vicar here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm delighted that you're here this morning. I'm glad to be worshiping with you. Uh, This is the third week of Lent, and we are focusing on St. John's Gospel, Chapter 2. And as we do that, let me pray for us as we begin. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Amen. Back in the mid-19th century, there was a Catholic renewal in England in which the church was returning to the use of things like candles on the altar and wearing vestments, doing daily prayer, having incense in the church, and other things that had been branded too Catholic for the Church of England, if you can believe it. There was a day in which most of those things were not acceptable uh, in the Church of England, so there was this Catholic renewal as people were restoring those things. And out of this revival came a surprising missional movement. Some people called it the slum priests. These priests who were very steeped in Catholic tradition uh, and in the Catholic way of worship uh, through the history of the Church sought to create churches among the poor, uh, providing spaces where people could meet God where they could become the church together in places where many in England did not want to go. And one of these priests was a vicar named Charles Lauder. He was a child of wealth. He studied at Oxford. And during a post at St. Barnabas in London, he learned the rituals and the rhythms of the Catholic revival. It was through reading the life of St. Vincent de Paul that he was inspired to devote his life to helping the poor. So he began to work amongst London's most poor in in a dangerous part of London in in the East End. Because of the Industrial Revolution in that time, people in that area were poorly paid. Uh, The housing was overcrowded, and it was generally an unsanitary place. So diseases would spread like crazy. And in 1856, he took a position in a place called St. George's in the East. And it said that during his sermons, there were um, some really questionable characters who were dancing among the pews during his sermons. Um, People were throwing things at him. There's even a story about someone throwing a dead cat at him during during his sermon. So thank you for not doing that. So Father Lauder had to go through quite a bit to establish a church uh, and and minister through St. George's in the East. Um, He pressed on, though, and in 1866, there was a cholera outbreak that hit East London. And given the conditions, you know, you can imagine being there was a scary place. So others at this time were running for safety. They were trying to get out. But he was sort of hard-headed. Um, I can't use the word to say what some people have described him uh, because it's a little strong for some of our little ears. But he was a very stubborn man and he was going to do it no matter uh, what others said. So he stayed with the course. Even despite the cholera outbreak, he ministered to people. And 
and he stayed. He raised money for medical supplies. He recruited volunteers to help with uh, minister to those who were dying. And he worked really hard to relieve the suffering of other people in the east uh, part of London. Now, once the cholera outbreak had passed, he was known in that neighborhood from then on as Father Louder. You know, he's not just the vicar of the east side of London. The people called him Father Louder. He'd earned this title of father in this area uh, in the ways that he had cared for people. And in his time of service, the church grew. The church that he was ministering at grew numerically. Uh, But also substantively, children became literate in the area. Uh, People were able to lift themselves out of poverty. And this Catholic-minded priest from the Anglican Church was teaching people how to become the church together. And then allowing the church to then reach out and teach others in their neighborhood about how to become all that God has made them to be. And so the gospel had this beautiful, holistic character among the slum priests in the Catholic renewal in England. He was a holy disruptor and, and a renewal agent in a place that not many people in the church were willing to go. And he saw a need that the church could meet by its very presence and his zeal for bringing the life of God to this little part of London feels a little bit like Jesus' flipping of the tables in the midst of a culture whose obsession with forward progress uh, in the Industrial Revolution had left many people sacrificed on the altar of greed and an insatiable desire for wealth, comfort, and efficiency. And so Father Louder's example is this confrontation of the gospel with the brokenness that human sin has created in the Industrial Revolution. He becomes this holy disruptor. And and so this morning's gospel text, um, more than many others, reminds us of the holy disruption that Jesus likes to bring about in, in his kingdom ministry. People are going to be traveling long distances as we get into this text. It says that it was just before the Passover. People were traveling long distances um, for the Passover to worship the Lord in his temple, to have an encounter with the living God. And Jesus is going as well. There's different animal sacrifices that are prescribed in the law of Moses. um, And that's not going to be easy to bring on a long trek. So if you're if you're coming from Syria, you're not going to bring a cow with you like that is. It's nearly impossible to make that journey. And so what grew up around the temple system was a market of sacrificial offerings for travelers. And and that's actually not the problem, at least in this gospel. I'm sure that there were injustices concerning inflation, uh, marking up prices, economic injustice, perversions that are being committed. I'm sure that happened. And in fact, in the other gospels, because... This story is mentioned in all four. It does get that kind of mention in the other Gospels, but not here. The problem is not having a place where you can sell animals for the sacrificial system. The problem is that the market for it is occurring within the temple complex, not outside of it. The market is inside the temple complex. So it would be one thing if these merchants were along the highways, if they were standing outside the doors and they were selling um, and they were selling these animals. But they're in the temple and not just in the temple. Commentators have pointed out that where they're selling these things is the court of the Gentiles. 
Now, this is the one place in the Jewish temple a Gentile is allowed to go. They're in the court of the Gentiles. And that's the only place that a Gentile can come and pray and have an encounter with the Lord. And now it's a noisy market. And so think with me about the craziness of this for a moment. I was half-jokingly, and maybe I should have done it, I was going to bring like a table in here and put coins over it so you guys could hear what it's like to hear a table fall and then all the coins just splash out on the ground. Um, So imagine with me the craziness of this moment. Jesus walks into the court of the Gentiles. So he's on the temple mount, like in in the, the structure, and as he walks in, his heart rate starts going up. He kind of looks around in disbelief. I'm sure there was anger at what's taking place. But no one of his disciples seemed to understand why he's so angry. Like, I don't think anybody else is yet having this reaction. This is just the way things are done around here. Like, they're walking into something that is well-established, people are used to. The disciples look at him and wonder why Jesus got so quiet all of a sudden. What's he thinking? His nostrils begin to flare a little bit. Like his body is sort of reacting to what he's seeing. And then he reaches for some reeds. And the disciples are kind of wondering what's about to happen. Like, is he going to make something that he can sell, give to somebody? You know? And he starts tying them together. And then the disciples are still wondering. And then without warning... Jesus, all of a sudden, starts chasing people out of the Temple Mount with a makeshift whip. Like, that's astounding. Um, And people are running away terrified. Wouldn't you? I'm sure I would. This person that you don't know that well, who claims to be the Messiah, is chasing people around with a whip. You are going to run out of there as fast as you can. And why is this happening? I mean, think about it. Cages are falling over. These pigeons are falling over. There's cows mooing, sheep bleeding, and, and all these animals are just stampeding out of the temple area or just running aimlessly trying to find a safe place to exit along with the people. People and animals are going everywhere. This is a wild moment. And then you can, on top of that, hear the crash as the coins fall. Crash! Over and over again, animals are running, tables are falling, coins are flying everywhere, and this guy is running around with a whip chasing people. It's wild. And, and this is not an act of just anger. This is a purifying act. The temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, the Jew and the Gentile. This is where God's glory was supposed to be made known among the nations. And now it had turned into a marketplace of exclusion and to the exclusion of its ultimate purpose. The Gentiles would not know the grace and the glory of God because they cannot pray there. And this is what fuels the zeal of our Lord. And the system that Jesus was disrupting was that was one that had just come into being and nobody expected to change. It was well established. Nobody questioned it. And this story ultimately teaches us about the true Paschal Lamb and the ways that he wants to, as our colleague prayed, purify our disordered affections. Purify our disordered affections or or our um, disordered loves. These people had set up a system that was just there. 
uh, and they hadn't thought about it. And Jesus comes and he cleanses, he purifies something that is disordered. And, and the system is keeping people from seeing the glory of God. It's, it's using the things that would bring glory to God in inappropriate ways to the ends for which they weren't intended. And so aligning our affections to the things of the kingdom of God is ultimate peace or shalom. This is what Jesus is seeking to bring even here in the purification of the temple. This, this moment uh, that seems like utter chaos is a moment that is, let's call it judgment for the sake of purification, the rightly ordering of the loves that are disordered, the systems that needed to be broken up to rightly show God's glory to the nations. And so if the temple is the place of God's glory, and it's shalom, which means peace, then Jesus' anger and his act of purification is directed, not against people individually, but against the affront to God's shalom, what God wants to bring among the nations. And so that, I think that says something that informs our responses to anger. Anger happens. It's neutral. Anger is helpful. It should not foster contempt for ourselves or for other people. But, but anger, rightly used, becomes something that leads to shalom and the purification of disordered loves, disordered affections. Last year, I read this helpful little book, and, and I'd actually recommend people read it um, every election cycle. It's a little book by Ed Stetzer called Christians in the Age of Outrage. Um, you can sort of guess the themes that are going to come up in such a book. It's really helpful. As we think about the gospel, and the question that it's trying to address is, how does the gospel become compelling to, to people through the church? Uh, and it helps me think about what is the posture that we're supposed to adopt as the church so that the gospel becomes compelling? What's our tone in the conversations that we have with other people, both in person and if we're on social media, the conversations we have online? He says this, you can't hate people and engage them with the gospel at the same time. You can't war with people and show the love of Jesus. You can't be outraged and on mission. Anger, again, is neutral. It's an emotion. It's an indicator that our body is reacting to something that's useful and helpful. Jesus' actions are not described as pure rage. They're not vengeance. They're not wrath. They're not contempt for people. They're described as zeal for God's house. And it was an intense zeal. And I am sure that because Jesus is fully human, anger is part of the complex uh, emotional response that leads to the reaction that we see in the Gospels. Um, it's present in that moment for Jesus. But notice that the end of this action is shalom. It's peace. Purification of what's disordered. It is not shame. It is not contempt. You can't engage somebody, even if you're engaging them as an enemy, in the love of Christ when your anger is being held as contempt for them. And so it's okay to be angry, right? It's okay to be angry at the way things that are broken. It's actually a really helpful motivation sometimes. Um, and it helps us work for the restoration of the kingdom of God where things are broken. And unlike Jesus, 
we have many disordered affections, disordered loves. And so we need to be characterized by patience and humility when we're asking questions about anger because we're not perfect uh, like our Lord. And we can ask how that's pointing, uh, what the anger is pointing to before we act out uh, any kind of zeal. So sometimes that looks like practically is take a second, take two seconds, take three seconds before you answer uh, your uncle on Facebook, right? Um, and just pause and ask the Lord, okay, what, what is stirring up something within me? What am I reacting to? How is your zeal rightly applied to bring shalom to this situation? Divine zeal should lead to healing and shalom. It should not lead towards contempt uh, for someone made in the image of God. So Jesus does this purifying work in our hearts, and he does it in the world through his body in the church. And I think then as we think about this passage, there's both a corporate aspect to the ways that we apply it, and there's an individual way that we apply it together. The collect that we prayed today says God has made us for himself. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. So we can ask God then to look at our heartfelt desires. Have we actually taken time to ask the question of what are our deepest heartfelt desires? And then to ask God to purify the disordered loves in that space. In the temple, the authorities had created a system based on disordered loves. And I would imagine that as we look at our lives, there are systems that you and I have created, um, usually in the form of narratives about ourselves or others. There are routines that we uphold that are continuing to uphold disordered loves and affections. And so this is where we long for Jesus to become our compassionate and good disruptor. The one who chases away our idols, the one who restores shalom, the one who sets us on the course of discipleship with perfect love for the things of the kingdom of heaven. So the church is to become a community that welcomes the compassionate disruptor and holy disruptor to purify our disordered affections as the church. And I mean that on all levels. This local instantiation of the church at the diocesan level, at the provincial level, that God would purify our church in our disordered loves. We don't do any favors by stuffing our brokennesses into the darkness. We don't do any favors by mindlessly abiding by institutional systems that keep people from becoming all that they're meant to become as image bearers in Christ's body. There's another quote from that same book that was helpful to me. And Spencer says, when the church protects the powerful at the expense of the victim, we have compromised. And in the end, these compromises add up and they convince the world that the church is not a community for the broken in search of healing, but just another human institution that puts expediency above righteousness and justice. And so I know that it is heartbreaking to see injustice happen in churches. And I can talk with each one of you and talk about the ways that that has been true for you. I know it myself. But we also um, need to stop pretending that we have it all together. Right? This is where it comes down to each of us in this church. We do not have it all together, any one of us. Thanks be to God. 
Because I would feel way inferior compared to you all. I don't. And we, so we can't pretend. We don't need to pretend. This is a hospital for the broken. This is not a portrait gallery of the perfect. Right? And, and through honesty and integrity, through vulnerability and truth, bringing things into the light, God is bringing shalom in this community through Christ, who's our healer and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we actually need one another in this regard to walk through our brokenness together. So the, the kingdom of God and the restoration of all things begins in the redeemed lives of a community of people in each one of us. And creation is longing for the revealing of the redemption of the children of God. Because in that redemption that we find in ourselves is the first fruits of the redemption that God's going to bring to the cosmos. And, and this is what I love, again, about Father Louder and, and the, the slum priests. They are compassionate and holy disruptors. They're this leavening agent in the societies that God's called them to in their neighborhoods and cities. And so this is my prayer for us as well as we follow our Lord, that we would do good work, substantial work together in the kingdom of God and the mission of God, that we would live with spiritual integrity as we go about our vocations, whatever God has called us to right now. Not perfectly, um, but always being reformed together by the God who wants to restore us and to bring us to his peace. So as we go through this week, in our third week of Lent together, let's, let's take note of where our anger is at brokenness. Don't stuff it. Acknowledge it. Uh, acknowledge its usefulness even. And then ask Jesus for his power to rewrite the narrative so that all of our life is transformed into this place where we can meet the living God where our loves would be ordered according to the kingdom of God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Look with compassion upon the heartfelt desires of your servants. And purify our disordered affections that we may behold your eternal glory in the face of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.